0: get-out-of-jail-free card based on the recent news we've gotten surrounding the current president, which is that because he's under some kind of investigation, which they're trying to paint as similar or exactly the same thing, or Trump's even arguing it's worse, all BS, that now Donald Trump is scot-free. But Mm -hmm. that's not the case for a couple big reasons. And people around him, like Jared Kushner and the rest of his family and other Trump cronies... Should be more afraid now than they've been at any point, at least in the last few weeks and months. And there's two big reasons why that is really, three big reasons. One, this is not the same thing. And I think in many ways that once people see what Biden did versus what Trump did, or especially what Trump didn't do, it'll make Trump's criminality and the criminality of his cronies much clearer. Two, Because this investigation is happening, and because the person doing it is appointed by Trump, it's going to make it much more difficult for Trump to claim partisanship. Remember that when Trump and and, and everyone around him was arguing, oh, when they they investigate Hunter, it'll just be to pretend like they're investigating him. So they're actually going after me. Trump will make the same argument here because he fears the politics. And finally... One critical factor, and this is why Jared and Ivanka are terrified tonight. I'm going to get to more of it after I play you some clips. That this is going to expedite and expand the investigation. That Smith is going to move even harder and faster. And because Biden documents were found, found at multiple properties, that's going to increase the likelihood that Trump will be hit at multiple properties as well. And not necessarily just his own. That's why everything's getting hairy for the kids and other cronies.
1: We said that you thought they were going to go for both, that they wouldn't just go for the obstruction. Do you think this changes the calculus a little bit when you look at what's happened with the Biden documents?
2: No, I don't. I think it still should remain, if they choose to bring an indictment against Donald Trump, I think they should still bring it under both provisions. Because in the Espionage Act provision um, in Section 793 that was mentioned in the search warrant uh, for Mar-a-Lago, there's Mm -hmm. verbiage in that provision that speaks to not just willfully retaining the national defense information in an unauthorized location, but also failing to return it once asked to do so by the proper government authority. That's part of the crux, part of the key against Donald Trump. It's not just that they found it there. It's that they refused to provide it back and return it to where it was supposed to be in a timely manner when requested. They played games over 18 months with the first stuff with NARA, then the subpoena, and all this over and over. That's why, if there's an indictment, both provisions should be in there. And let's be very clear. Information. Happens. It should not happen. But the Justice Department generally doesn't get involved unless there's an aggregate aggregating factor of intent in terms of why you did it or there's an issue of obstruction.
1: You and I both know that prosecutors, the justice system is supposed to operate in a vacuum in terms of not being subject to bias, prejudice, et cetera. But there is a concern that the discovery of these Biden documents could have a chilling effect on the DOJ's decision to ultimately indict Donald Trump regarding the Mar-a-Lago case. Do you think that that is going to be a factor when Jack Smith is deciding whether or not he wants to pursue charges?
2: I think if it has any impact on what the special counsel is currently doing, it'll be to ensure that everything is tightened up, that if they are going to take this historical step of indicting a former president, that they will want to make sure they have every piece of information, every fact locked down and ready to go, Mm -hmm. that there are no loopholes, there are no weaknesses, there's no gaps in the story, no gaps in the details that they are aware of that they've found. In terms of the larger picture, though, if... What we know about the Biden team's response turns out to be fully accurate. If they come cooperated, there's no obstruction that comes into play. I personally view it as more reason to bring the indictment of Donald Trump to make the point that there are ways to properly handle this. The Biden team did it. If you do it incorrectly, if you flout the law the way the Trump team did, you can still get indicted. That's why I would view an indictment there as even more important to make that point clear to other constitutional officers and to other clearance holders that we will work with you when you make mistakes, but don't mess with us.
1: Before I've got to let you go, I wanted to cover some ground with you. You've argued before about the need for reforms to the classification system itself. What reforms do you think need to occur?
2: Sure, so there's no real incentive for security classification authorities to ever declassify information unless there is a strict legal requirement in mind
3: that President Biden and his attorneys are thwarting the investigation of the Justice Department, but that's simply not the case right now. And if that evidence were to emerge, of course the president, the current president should be investigated, but that's just not the case. And I think this desire to make it uh, one side versus the other thing, you just can't do that to every case, and it's just not not the case here.
4: We are a society that draws distinctions and analogies probably more often than we should, however, there were a lot of questions today. And here, just a, a couple of them that were asked and of the White House Press Secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, that she declined to answer. Who brought the documents to the office? Did Biden himself bring them? Why did it take so long to disclose the discovery to the public? Was the timing related to the midterm elections? Were there any other things found? Is there an audit underway? Was he briefed? When was he briefed? Why were the private lawyers doing this? A number of questions that she declined to answer because she cited an ongoing investigation. But that election part, the when the people are finding out, that is going to be something that already has legs and might continue to run as he intends to run for the reelection campaign. Do you have a sense as to why they haven't gotten out ahead of this? I mean, from Monday to now, why not just say more?
5: I, I think the issue of why wait so long is a real issue that's gonna have political yeah. consequences for him. Uh, People don't like to hear this, but this is a gift to Donald Trump and the Republicans, and waiting so long is part of that gift. That said, maybe their reasoning is that they were cooperating with an investigation. I don't know, but the political fallout is what it is. I I will say, I don't think there's much of a chance that Joe Biden carried these, you know, (laughs) 40 boxes here Uh, I have a source who's very familiar with the documents for the record. He is a lifelong registered Republican, and he knows a lot about how these things are handled over the years. He thinks it was very likely an honest mistake. The real question today is, what are these other new documents right. that yeah. were found in these other locations? Your eyebrow raised at
4: the thought of an honest mistake. Maybe the FBI within you was like, honest mistake. What is <laughs> no, this you say about no, an honest no. mistake? Go ahead. No, actually,
3: and, and Elliot can back me up on this.
6: These sort of referrals from the National Archives or other places yeah. about the concerns about Classified documents that may be outside of approved facilities, they come to the department and to the FBI all the time. And most of them are resolved without criminal charges. Uh, the Bureau's first uh, concern is to, to find out where is this stuff, let's get it back, mm-hmm. and to conduct an assessment as to whether or not there's been damage to national security. Have we compromised sources and methods? Do we need to move people? Do we need to remove technologies from places that they are helping us collect intelligence? Um, and once that's done, that's when you start thinking about, could it? have been an honest mistake, i.e., do we not have enough evidence to prove the intent mm-hmm. to mishandle documents that's required under those uh, statutes? So there will be a time for all that, and all of these facts that you've mentioned are you going to be important. It's true. It, it's awesome. true. We're
4: going to come back to this point, and it's important to hear all your perspectives. And of course, remember that the reason we know about the search on Mar-a-Lago and the entire course of events between Trump and the archives is because Trump was the one to have said something about it. So maybe there was a maybe a lesson learned and it's gone awry. Who knows?
3: Justice Department. And I expect the Justice Department to vigorously resist. That's an understatement. The idea that any DOJ is going to turn over investigative files is just ridiculous. They're not going to. um, And so there will be court fights. But I also think one other thing that may happen is if you're Merrick Garland or Jack Smith, and you see this congressional committee devoted to obstruction on the horizon, it might speed up your timetable a little bit. It might mean that you're more likely to bring that indictment more quickly than you might otherwise because you want this in the courts. The last place you want this yeah. is with Jim Jordan and with other political actors who are trying to make hay of a criminal investigation. And so do what the government has done for 200 years. Make your case in court. If you know Trump and others have defenses, let them make them, of course, and let the judge and jury
0: decide. So listen to those clips. I wanted to play those for you to really underline that this is they're different things. They're both important, they're both serious, but one is like down here, you can hear my end, and one is way up here. They both merit an investigation. But one is likely going to be a structural one. What happened? How can we prevent this from happening? Biden should probably apologize. He might take a political hit, but there's no crimes here. And Donald Trump, it's very much like all of those things, yes, plus there are crimes here. Well, whether he's charged or not, we don't know yet. But there's obstruction. There's willful destruction, potentially. All of these sorts of things. There's no no analog. With, with Biden to, to any of that. But that last one I played for you, and I believe I have played that clip as part of a broader portion for you in the last couple of days, but it's critical. Everyone thinks that this moment, whether it's this investigation or the rise of the GOP in the house that want to target the DOJ FBI for their own the investigators uh, crusade that they're on, their, Ill, their ill-guided crusade, um, it will expedite things. It's going to make things harder and faster. And I do think that this is where it hits daddy's little girl and her husband and the other kids and other Trump staffers. Because remember, Trump staffers like Peter Navarro have already gotten themselves in the hot water for having classified Trump documents and other things in their possession, you know, and, and being told by the DOJ FBI to give those things back. And it's not probably just Peter. And I definitely think that what this is going to do is expand the scope and you're going to see searches of these people's properties or requests and all of that. So just at the moment where they all breathed the sigh of relief and thought that the Biden investigation will nullify the Trump investigation, I think it's going to intensify it and expedite it and broaden it right over the head of Jared Kushner. And.
4: I oh, look. The peanut butter box is here. Ralph,
0: that's the Chewy Pharmacy box with our flea and tick meds.
7: So, um, what was... Wow. The fatal error. <clears> he <throat> really fucked up. Philadelphia Experiment. True story of invisibility, time travel, and mind control. I heard... I need to see this again because I I don't think I've seen it actually. This is part two. One Day Ago, V Movies, Philadelphia Experiments. I heard that that is. uh...
8: The subject today is a little bit different than what I have normally done. Uh, Last year, I gave you a fairly detailed history of the Philadelphia Experiment and how it tied into the Phoenix Project. Today, my intent is somewhat different. I wish to show the background connections between the two projects, how they happened, the politics uh, that was involved and the interlocking uh, controls, if you will, and the communication, which resulted in the two tests locking to each other, how this really occurred.
7: Part two. Part one. Here we go. <clears throat> up experiment. <clears throat> a true story of invisibility, time travel, and mind control. Welcome
6: to the truth about the Philadelphia Experiment. We're about to experience an amazing story. It's a story that I'd spent many years investigating. I like to call this part of the presentation
7: the interview. I'm going to read the write-up here. Okay. Al Bielik, Duncan Cameron, and Preston Nichols are three men with intimate knowledge of the strange and incredible events that took place and may very well still be taking place now. They explain the technology they helped develop and test and how it may be being used to change the future. <coughs> Uh-oh. Prepare for an unprecedented journey into the strange and unknown. Welcome to V-Movies, the fastest growing YouTube channel for full-length movies. Uh, It was filmed in
6: 1989, but that doesn't make it any less relevant. In fact, it's become more relevant. A number of other witnesses have come forward since that time to verify the information that you'll see here. The interview comprises two stories that are intertwined the Philadelphia Experiment, and the Montauk Project. The Philadelphia Experiment had several purposes. It began as a World War II Navy project to demagnetize ships against a new type of German mine that was attracted to the magnetized metal of vessels. The degousing of ships tended to be an arduous process in those days, and it involved a stay in dry dock, and most of the electronic equipment on board a ship had to be removed while it was being degaussed. This was a method that was really practical for wartime use. The
7: creation of a strong field of some type that could be controlled instantly in would be a much
6: better. Each ship would be provided with the same equipment, control the control at all times, so that degaussed literally be the gousy process could take place at any time. But whether the gousy was to up the first German performance and deport it, it was in no way the end game. second one more important goal in the fourth day was to make Navy ships invisible to radar. It was no that the Germans were developing powerful radar systems in those days, but could top ships from Great distances fact, in 1942, plans were already underway to equip new German multi-purpose aircraft with radar-guided bombs. Information obtained after the war proved this fact to be true. The scientists and engineers that developed the technology for the Philadelphia Experiment saw that the gouging work as a way to get their feet in the door with the military. They had ideas that went far beyond the and radar invisibility.
1: But the demagnetizing project allowed them access to government officials and government money. <laughs> nice. So I just lift up my phone and say you can do something to spend $5, win $150. Right. Yeah, uh, no ads. Fuck off. Fuck off. The government
6: officials and government money. For the potential price tag of for what they really had in mind, they needed time to explain and prove their ideas to the military. The Navy was the first. President Franklin Roosevelt had been Assistant Secretary of the Navy under President Woodrow Wilson and was appointed to that position in 1913. Now as President, he was known to have a great deal of respect and affection for the Navy. Vessels of U-boats and enemy ships. You'll hear more about the history of the story during the interview, but the end game of the scientists and engineers involved was complete invisibility and more. With a one-time chance of millions of dollars in government money likely to go away after the war, they had a chance to take 10 million years. And Ideas. that the ideas could work. and did so by staging them and tests over a period of time. Not all the tests went well, as you can see, but the scientists and engineers involved produced the results that they could not ignore. The Institute of Advanced Studies at Princeton University in New Jersey was the home of most of the scientists and engineers involved with the Philadelphia experiments. Einstein made his home at the Institute and is said to have been involved directly with the experiments. It's a historical fact that he the attention the, the World War II. The work he did for was not chance for the prodigies to establish their own reputations and their own areas of development using those much-needed government funds. With the nearby Philadelphia Naval Shipyard and its assets placed at their disposal, they moved forward to the point where she trials of the technology planned and carried out in the early 1940s. During one of these trials, the Hyperspace Forte, which transported two of the cells from the test ship to the to another place in space and time. story. When I first went to this special event,
7: I must say I was skeptical and uh, ready not to think most of what she
6: said, because it did fit into what I thought about technology and government and things of that nature, even though I've been a paranormal investigator for many years and investigated a number of outrageous UFO crimes But I did approach it um, As objectively as possible, and in the I brought people with me to help verify these claims. But let me give you a little bit of information about the people that were involved in this interview session. Let's begin with Preston Nicholas. He was born on Long Island, New York, in 1946.
7: He has degrees in parapsychology, psychology, and electrical engineering. Preston worked for most of his
6: life in defense electronics and wound up at Brookhaven National Labs and AIL. In 1968, Preston's involvement with modified and Canada, he got involved in the end of study research at AIL. Preston was told that the research started right after the Philadelphia experiments. He actually read the final report in the Philadelphia which was what was known as the Philadelphia experiment in those days. The report named the Cameron Brothers, as being the Navy Liaison in the Experiments. Next he got pulled into the Mind Sciences Project at Montauk. They were working on interface networks of the mind and computer. The Preston worked with alveolar and the psychic aspects of the Montauk Chair and the Montauk Boys program. The Preston trained the Montauk Boys the PSI Warriors. The Montauk Chair used several Montauk to read a person's thoughts. Lay in the chair, go into a trance, and a group of coils picked up the emanations. A bank of radio receivers designed by Tesla could pick up and digitize
1: the thought. Turning thought. Into the method to growing your tool by 64% in a matter of weeks can be found in your kitchen. Are you afraid your tiny buddy down there isn't long or.
6: Turning thought into computer code. The radar tower was used to turn thought into reality. This chair was used for many purposes. One was to open up a vortex for time travel. Many Montauk boys were lost due to the initial testing of the time vortex. Hmm. Now let me introduce you to Al Bielek. Al Bielik has led a life that most would not choose to lose. While many would think that time travel, meeting aliens and working on secret projects are exciting ventures,
7: hmm.
6: Al paid a big price for the privilege. Because those who set the agenda wished to keep their activities secret, Al was robbed of his family, his memories, and ultimately oh. his identity. Sure. They used advanced technologies to erase what was dear to him. However, their technologies were not perfect. It, surely, the memories came back Al started meeting others who had been through the same process, and ultimately a flood of memories returned, that would allow him to tell his story in his own words. Al has been involved for many years in electrical engineering. Duncan Cameron is one of the central figures in the Philadelphia Experiment and Montauk Project saga. According to Al, Duncan was his brother when Al was a captain who jumped off the USS Eldridge in 1943 and landed into the future. When they wound up in 1982 or 83 at Montauk, they were both sent back the USS Eldridge to destroy the equipment that was keeping the ship in hyperspace. Al Belick says that before the Eldridge rematerialized, Duncan jumped back off the ship and returned back to 1983. He was used extensively as a psychic in the Montauk project. He became one of the principal psychics who manned the Montauk chair. The chain was used to create and hold the frequency required to Form the time travel and mind control activities. If this plot, if you will, sounds suspiciously like the theatrical movie, The Philadelphia Experiment, it should. It's thought that the movie came out at a time and was produced at a time when basically the story of Montauk was going to come out anyway, because despite all the brainwashing techniques that were being used and thought masks, uh, some of the people remembered. It. And what a great way to have plausible denial if a movie were to come out before anyone talked, and the movie was obviously uh, portrayed as a fictional story, so that anyone telling the story after that would be thought to be claiming something that was nothing but pure fiction. The interview was filmed by me in the Long Island home of a friend of Preston now. A strange cargo bands circling the neighborhood while the session was conducted on a chilly day after thanksgiving in 1989 we had lots of i filmed as best i could without special lighting or anything that might be tracked those present in the task at hand i was about i was able to use microphones placed near those that were involved so the sound quality isn't bad among those present at this sort of micro event were a small, specially invited group of paranormal researchers, psychics, and journalists. A friend of mine who wrote a number of technical manuals, including some for the space shuttle, and also worked in the defense industry, was there to provide me with verification of the technological claims by Preston and Al. Not only did he verify, it, but hearing the story kept him up for days afterwards and made him wonder why he and others working on government contracts were not allowed access to this amazing technology.
9: Thank um, Preston, Al, and Cameron for being here tonight. Really, I mean, for all of us eccentrics, we are thoroughly pleased to hear about the Rainbow Project, the Philadelphia Experiment, the Phoenix Project, all that good stuff, and so I guess... um, You can all take it the way you want, you know, as one after another while he puts on his sunglasses. And this is really, I think, a memorable event. And so uh, you guys can take on the project, and thanks for being here. Go come on, Preston. Why don't you start? All right, so we're here tonight. We have with us Mr. Biela who is from the Eldridge, who is the Philadelphia the experiment, the older fellow that went back to 43. We also have with us Mr. Conway, who is also off the Eldridge. Two of the craziest people in the world. Now, gentlemen,
8: they're not crazy, they survive. I'm
9: here at the offices of the, what's it, Palocci? 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 Oh, yeah, Palocci. Philippa- the Brothers. Right. We're here in this nice, beautiful home in Blue Point. This home has to be at least a quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> I'll tell <jump. laughs> Three quarters of a million. three quarters of a million, whatever. And I don't know what we're going to talk about. Uh, Why don't you start with um, what what Montauk was about, how it tied in the thought experiment. Uh, a brief synopsis, maybe of. Okay. okay, first of all, I gotta find the power cord. You want to start with Philadelphia yeah, I and mean, then go to however. power however ties in. I first have to find the power cord, and I gotta to plug the power cord and plug up the paper. Go, go. There, plug it. All wait right, right back. If you're
6: 45 and older and
9: live
4: in the United States and you still don't have life insurance.
0: We're gonna show you how easy it is to apply for up to a million dollars in coverage with no physical exam and no big three required. Even if you have health conditions or you're a smoker, click the blue button below this video and get a risk-free quote today.
4: Even if you find yourself hesitant
0: about getting a life insurance, just remember this.
4: We don't buy life
0: insurance for ourselves.
4: We buy it for the people that depend on. It. Good.
9: Good. All right. Way right back when, let's start with the Phoenix project. The Phoenix project is a carry on. Uh, that was a. Can you hear who? Can you hear him Okay. That was a silly little project that the Navy did back in the thirties and the forties, attempting to make a battleship invisible. They wanted to make an aircraft carrier invisible. They threw the switch. One eventful day, and the ship went in the hyperspace, with all sorts of problems with people on the boat. The Navy said the thing's a huge failure, it's a huge success, but it's also a huge failure. Then they shelved it. In about 47, it was decided, you know, the can't leave this thing alone. They got a wild, wild effect that they wanted to study, so in 47, they reopened it and uh, started up with what we came to later to know as the Phoenix Project, it was originally the Rainbow Project. It was moved to Brookhaven National Laboratory, and Dr. Von Neumann and all his associates, this is the one before any of us were involved in it, thought to replicate this thing. Out of the Phoenix One, the early project, came the stealth technology, which I cannot talk about. Now, neither of these two guys would talk about the stuff technology, but I cannot talk about it because of my job. And also, came out all sorts of energetic little toys, such as radio songs. What is a radio song? Well, if you remember all back when we were kids, we saw these little white plastic boxes that had a white bottle hanging down on it. But they connected into a little red parachute, filled up a balloon with helium, connected the whole thing up in the atmosphere The government told us, hey, this thing is a weather data package. It has a temperature sensor, has a humidity sensor, and it has a pressure sensor in it. And this thing will ultimately transmit temperature data, humidity data, temperature data, reference data, and the switching was controlled by the barometric pressure at the height by what they call a the barrel switch. This thing used a very unusual type of pulse modulation. In most cases they used a CW, continuous wave oscillator, and pulsed the thing off. The pulse was pulsing it off. This turned out to be a very efficient conversion of electrical energy to etheric energy. Now, I very recently started collecting radio sounds. I don't know why, but I did. I walked in with a radio sound, and one of the associates at Space Time Laboratory says, uh, things are a weather control device. So, of course, I piqued my interest. i already known that the humidity sensor was terrible. Its accuracy was a lot to be desired. i known the temperature sensor was terrible. Its accuracy had a lot to be desired. And the other unusual thing that I wondered about is yeah, I can get all the radio sounds I want. I've never ever seen a receiver for. So we first did a quote unquote psychic reading. See spacetime Space Time Laboratories, everybody knows the CAD, computer aided designs at Space Time Laboratories, we use psychic-aided design. So we had a number of different psychics read on the radio sounds, weather control device, buster foregone enhancing. That's the readings that came through. So, I got very interested, and I started to ask around about radio signs. The next thing I found out, by word of mouth, is these things were designed at Brookhaven National Laboratories up in Long Island, New York, you know, just up the road from this place. <laughs> and I started to talk to people I know at Brookhaven ran across a retired gentleman from Brookhaven who wishes to remain nameless, so I won't name him. He'll stay anonymous. He told me that the design was originally done by a character named the name of Wilhelm Wright. Of course that piqued my interest even more. Wilhelm Wright. The story goes that in about 47 Mr. Wright handed the US government a uh, weather control device a little package that uh, would do door busting. He felt that if he could reduce the amount of door and increase the orgone in the storm, the storm wouldn't be violent, it wouldn't have winds, and it wouldn't do the damage. It would be a less violent storm. What if the Deadly Dead or Deadly orgone. Dead orgone. That's the bad stuff. And where does it oh. come from? No one really knows where it comes from. I've heard a number of theories well, essentially, orgone can be considered like life energy, energy from life forces, energy from living beings. That orgone is same type of energy but that. It doesn't have any life in it. It has a tendency to decrease life functions. It reduces life functions. So, the government took this little widget that Mr. Wright handed him. He told him, put it on a balloon, and send it up. Of well, course, they put a parachute they didn't want the thing coming down with a big, loud, crashing bang to somebody's skylight, and the government gets sued for all sorts of money. And they send the thing up into a bad storm, and it gets reduced the intensity tremendously. So the government goes back to Reich and says, hey, we like the thing. So they launched another part of the Phoenix Project, where they designed these radio sounds. This is almost like a little subsection of this, by the way, this story. Now of course, I dug further and further into it. As I already noted, I talked of the receiver. There are instances where we know they launch these things from the to sea, every airport, every uh, weather station, they launch them from planes. At one point in the fifties, there must have been maybe two hundred to five hundred of these things launched every day. The radio range, being a radio person, I can tell you about that. I checked it. The radio range on these transmitters, even up in the air, maybe is a hundred miles. So that means when they launch one of these briefnesses had to be a receiver close by. They're going to send up a data transmitter and not have, you know, have a receiver. That means that they're sending 200 or more of these things up each day. It's got to be one pile of receivers. These receivers should be very common. Now, I happen to be a receiver collector. I have uh, over 100 receivers in my personal collection of receivers. I have never seen a radio sound receiver. I've heard of them, but I've never seen one. I got almost every other receiver that was used in the 40s and the 50s by the military. I have a question. What is the assembly uh, frequency
8: that modulation on the radio
9: sound? Okay. 403 megahertz and 1680 megahertz. They use two different frequencies. And yeah, they're, they're both on uh, simultaneously? Huh? They're both uh, on simultaneo simultaneously. No, it's one, the one, for, one for primary and one for secondary. No, it's one transmitter or the other transmitter that's in the package. The early ones are on 403. The four hundred and three. The later ones Oh, plus or minus two megahertz. And the later ones are on sixteen eighty, plus or minus about six megahertz. They were crystal or? No, no, they were just re running oscillators. The 400 megahertz, I was going to get into the details, the technical details of how the radio sound worked. But this is a good time to go into that. I don't have any illustrative materials. So i I'll to attempt to describe to you people how the circuitry worked. It's a very unique system that they had. Essentially, the temperature element was a thermistor type. It is a negatively varied resistance with the temperature. As the resistance goes up, as the temperature goes up, the resistance goes down. Now, I had a mass spectrograph done on one of these thermistors, and I compared it to a YSI thermistor. And they all—they both have carbon in them. You know, they both are essentially carbon, but the uh, radioson thermistor had some silver in it, had some gold in it, had some platinum in it. had some iridium. I'm trying to remember the other two elements it had. It has a fair amount of silver in it. Silver was about 10% by weight. Now, for a thermistor, it's not going to make it any more accurate than anything. It's going to make the curve go really strange. You can deal with metals like that. Of course, if you read Wilhelm Reich literature, you'll find that Reich used sensors that had gold and silver in them. That's one interesting note there. The humidity element is a plastic plate with silvered edges with a grid of um, inductive lines going across the plastic plate. You know, this way, this way, you know, this way, this way, this way, this way, this, way, this, way, this sort of thing. They put on a very odd mix of chemicals. The chemistry lab has not come back yet with the mix of chemicals these they put on it. Now the unusual thing about the temperature being the humidity element is most electrolytic resistors I've ever seen, the resistance goes down as they get damp. These things, the resistance goes up as they get damp. Now what we're theorizing at this point which we've proven from the esoteric side, we have no physical data to back it up, is that the thermistor rod, the, the temperature sensor, the temperature rod, acts like an antenna for the door. It acts like a door antenna out of phase. That's the dead organ. The humidity sensor acts as an antenna for the organ. Of course, this parallels the whole idea of, you'll see in esoteric circles, people use... Uh, salt water solutions with uh, different electrodes in to detect these energetics with a fair degree of success. <clears throat> Looks like here, right took it much further. Now the pressure sensor is essentially what they call a barrel switch or a uh, <clears throat> pressure sensor cycling switch. That the thing would rise, the pressure would change and the needle in the little barometer would, would go across a switch segment the segments of a switch. that all will relay that would Simon you know, would uh, in the sequence put either the temperature or the humidity sensor back and forth between. was switch between these two sensors. it was switched to which I'll explain in a minute how it's done to what they call a reference mode in the transmitter. <clears throat> so what they have as this thing rises and goes above the earth, It transmits a signal that destroys the door, and also transmits a signal after that, or before, however you look at it, that builds up the orgone energies. Now, let's consider the transmitter. The transmitter is a very interesting little beast. It is two oscillators. An oscillator that runs at the carrier frequency, the 403 megahertz, or 1680 megahertz, there's a second oscillator, which is a 7 MHz oscillator, coupled into the grid of the carrier oscillator. Now, the control grid of the modulation oscillator, the 7 MHz oscillator, has an RC network that causes to do the relaxation number. Now, as the oscillator runs to build up DC across the grid, when the capacitor that's in the RC network for the relaxation oscillator... I have to apologize, I don't have any schematics with me. I didn't expect to talk of this, but there was interest at the table. <clears throat> As that capacitor would build up high enough in charge and put a high negative bias on the grid of the tube, cut the tube off, the oscillator would stop oscillating, of course, the RC network would discharge and pull the uh, voltage down on the capacitor just like a neon bulb oscillator. So essentially that seven megahertz oscillator would pulse on and off. Now, the lower the resistance, the faster the pulsing would be, and the higher resistance, the slower the pulsing would be. I'm trying to make this as clear as I can without having a schematic to point out. I don't know, are the two people here following what I'm saying that have some technical background? Now, they did not couple the 7 megahertz directly into the grid of the carrier oscillator. It couples to an RC network where it is where the first resistor is in series with the plate coils between the B-plus and the B-plus end of the plate coil. They have a capacitor going to the ground, a bypass capacitor that integrates the function. Then they RC couple with a series capacitor and you know, a resistor going to the ground on the oscillator of the uh, <coughs> carrier oscillator. Well, what happened Whenever the modulation oscillator would click in, turn on, it would cut off the carrier oscillator and shut it off. Of course, etheric signals are already differentiated. So it means when you put the differentiated signal through the integrated network, it comes out in its real form in that final amplifier, you know, that final oscillator. Wouldn't, excuse me, wouldn't that
8: serve uh, to also attenuate the... Uh, uh, this- the uh, instantaneous uh, spike in other
9: words the mm-hmm. uh, emphasis uh, network yes uh, that's what the oscillator that was the intent wasn't it primary oscillator in the we output. don't know what the intent was behind it that's what it appears to be it's a inter, it's an integrator which is a de emphasis right a differentiator is your emphasis network You think in, in engineering see, as a technician you talk uh, the emphasis and emphasis, in engineering, we talk of integration and differentiation. And, you know, being trained in that, that's what I thought of. So the difference, the the etheric signal or the hyperspatial signal, the organ, is already differentiated. It can't do anything. It's 90 degrees out of phase to begin with. This integration network brings it back in phase for the transmitter to transmitter Now, also, you have to keep in mind that when the tube goes from a semi-saturated mode as it is when the carrier oscillator is oscillating, the cutoff. there are other things taking place from the zero-point potential. When the tube is cut-off, any of the etheric signal that's stored in the tube will be pushed out the antenna. Also, when you cut the tube off and you go from saturation to cut-off, and from cut-off to saturation again, you're essentially ripping open the vacuum from the viewpoint of the Dirac space that you derived in the 30s. And you'll get an amplification. of these transmitters only pull out about a half a watt of CWRF power, the etheric content or the non-real power was equivalent to about 250-watt transmitter. That's how efficient these little things were. Can you describe the phase relationship between the rf output power and the direct power and the uh, frequency difference between the two? Okay, the frequency should be the same. The phase relationship uh, hmm? of... ...the cosine function? Let's see, what would it be? It would have to be, let's see, we're coming out with a differential equation relating the uh, baseband to the carrier frequency. It could be a tangent. Here's the tangent function. So it we'll would rise sharply yeah. until the next cycle. Mm-hmm. That tells you that sends out the etherics in bursts. So when this transmitter runs, the CW part of it, when the oscillator is on, it doesn't have much etherics. But at the point where the oscillator shuts off, it sends out a huge burst of etheric signal, that's your tangent function. I just had to think for a minute about what it would be the to, to answer your question. I, I have a totally different question.
6: What, uh, who was in charge of this project,
9: of the doorbusters? What, what,
0: what department of the government?
9: This was under United University's uh, Brookhaven National Labs. It was eventually turned over <coughs> to the Signal Corps. But most of these things were U.S. Army Signal Corps stuff. Even the one set up from the Weather Service was Signal Corps. So Signal Corps had ultimate charge of it. So as you're as you're talking about this this whole system, how does that now get into what was happening in the '40s and the '80s? Okay. Okay. Let's 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 finish this off a little. Where was I? You know, questions always break the train of thought. Mm-hmm. You were describing things to this at the time, but all right. The government could not tell the public that these things were weather control devices. They were keeping that secret. How did they guard the secret? Two ways. They first showed a few receiving stations constructed to receive these things. Put out that line. The personnel that launched them would laboriously calibrate them. Thirdly, the special tube that's in the radio signs, they would list in the tube manual as, as a whole bunch of blown. and essentially they'd be saying that only a few hours of life. That means if the ham over there picked one up, looked at the tube manual, the 7533 is only going to last a few hours, he's not going to use it. And that worked very well. As I already mentioned, I've never seen a receiver. That says they didn't use a receiver with these things. This is why this is the hard data besides the psychic data I, I base that the story is correct. All right, what we're seeing here actually is the naturality of Genesis of the Montauk Project. The Montauk Project was Phoenix Two. The Montauk Project is a combination of Wilhelm Reich's work in the Philadelphia Experiment. There's like two separate little projects going on in Phoenix One. You had the development of the... Uh, of the invisibility in its human factor study, also he had the development of Wilhelm Reich's weather control. So that was the one, Yeah, that's the next one, they converged. Towards the end of the Phoenix Project, by using some of Wilhelm Reich's concepts and some of the modulation schemes gleaned from the radioson Project, coupling, I know you're looking puzzled, this is what I found last week, Mm-hmm. Coupling that to the equipment that was used on the boat in the later invisibility project, they found out they couple coupled the two, you now could use this for mind control. I'm not saying move alteration, I know that would rather have me say mood alteration. Here, i can going a spade of a spade? Mind control, that's what these idiots were doing. They're not actually idiots. That's what these people did. doing. That's what the Montat project was. No, the Phoenix the One. Phoenix One. The end of Phoenix One, of course, what happened? Congress, the political government heard, hey, these guys are playing with mind control. They don't want that. So they thought, hey guys, cut it out. We don't want you looking into mind control. That's a no-no. So of course, the project was stopped. It was shut down. Does anyone here think it was really shut down? No, of course not the people that were running this project went to the military and said, hey, we got this neat, little, little project going. We can eventually use this to influence the mind of the enemy to give up and to surrender. We need a place to do this. We got to do this undercover now. So of course the military, oh, they, they love the idea. You know, they love something, well, switch and the enemy puts down all their weapons and comes up hands in the air. They love this. So the military was sold a bill of goods, and the military was said, okay, you can use the old Montauk Air Force base. It's dead, it's thoroughly. Also, some equipment you requested is on that base, the old SAGE radar. So the base was shut down, everything was auctioned off, but the SAGE radar was left behind. And the whole group moved from the uh, locating labs out to Montauk. That's Phoenix, too, because they spent the first 10 years, from about 1969 to about 1979, researching pure mind control. They started out by using, taking the output of the SAGE radar, modulating the special ways that they came up with that Reich had shown them from the weather control process, and combining that with stuff they noticed from the Philadelphia experiment work and the stealth work. for Seconds. The center frequency was uh, 406 megahertz generated from a stay low type function which was referenced from a zero time uh, function. Was there any other modulation on this? There was phase modulation, there was frequency hopping on it. Now, this is as I saw it when I got on the station. I'm first trying to account what we were digging. And citing and thinking and talking to different people told us was the genesis of this thing. Let's first, let's let let's keep all the technical questions till later. Okay? Let me explain that the chronology. Phoenix 2, then it would be starting in 1969? Yeah, past 69, 70, 71, somewhere in Phoenix there. Phoenix 1 went from basically from World War II. 48 to 68. 68. To 68. Yeah. Now, essentially, yeah. the first part. Of uh, the mind control project was to take an individual such as Duncan here, stand them maybe oh, 250 feet away from that antenna. As I was starting to go into what the SAGE radar is capable of, the SAGE radar had a peak pulse power of a half a megawatt. That's in the antenna. The antenna had a gain of uh, 30 dB. So that means you're a megawatt. It has a peak pulse power, effective radiated power of at least a gigawatt. This is nominally a gigawatt. Can you imagine what that would do to people? I think it's amazing that the people are still here today that to have been hit with this. It does such things as burnout brain functions and neurological damage. And you look inside of a person's lung that has this done, it look like their lung is all scarred from the heat generated. In, you know, just goes on and on with physical damage done to the body by this sort of thing. They tried this with a number of people, a few survivors, in this sort of thing. They were the volunteers, really. Yes. They were just grabbing indigenous people off the street and throwing in front of the radar beam and let's see what happens.
7: Mm-hmm.
9: You yeah, know, that's the sort of nonsense that the government loves to do. So, who, who was in charge of the targets? I was covered now. Uh, Mister Jack Freud mm. was in charge. All right, I mean, along with Doctor Johns, I know. Is anybody the agency? I'm not sure what the agency was. Now, somebody got the brilliant idea, upon the urging of the different people. They got the idea. We're not sure who came up with this idea first. The signal they really want goes through the reflector. So let's take the big banana peel, that's what's called reflector, turn around 180 degrees, and you put the subjects directly in line with the game horn beating the antenna. With all and behold, they got their results and then burned burn the people up. The poor bastards survived and they hit them with this signal. But they found out by varying the phase modulation, the frequency hopping, in the pulsing of the multiple stages that they could have profound effects on a person's mind. Can you describe some of them? Uh, I think these two gentlemen here could describe them much better than I can. But let's not go into that at this point. Yeah, why not? Let's at this point break from the technical description of the first, what I consider to be the real mind control work that they had done that was successful. Let's go into some of the effects for, you know, Mr. Bielek and Mr. Cameron, I think, can do more on this than I can. That was the goal, the enlightenment goal of this whole project. Yeah. That, was, that was the started goal. That was the first goal. Started yeah. goal. And how many people, more or less, worked all together on the base, uh, approximately? At About 30. Who 30. wanted to go on one base? Who wanted the go Use the base? Air Force. The Air Force and the Navy. Air Force and the Navy? Mm-hmm. In conjunction? No. Yeah. Air Force and Navy work together? Yeah, this was a joint project. So there's both Navy personnel in it and the Air Force personnel in it. Yeah? We even have copies of the orders of the Air Force personnel. And what was the cover story for the base? They think I had something.
8: They had none. No, yep. it was a derelict base. It was abandoned. It was it turned happened. over to GSA as surplus in 1970, around 69-70, when they shut down all the stage radar systems. That, in other words, there was a non-existent operation. Right. There was no government uh, coverage for it. There was no government payment. There was a surplus base which allegedly had nothing on it, so it was the perfect cover. Where did they get the funding? It was totally private. Yep. Private corporations? Actually. Uh, it didn't originally come from the corporations. It did in the later phases. The original money came from the Nazis, the Nazi government. In 1944, uh, four, there was a... Race. That was Phoenix 1. No, that no, wasn't Phoenix 1. No, not one. Phoenix 1. This is Phoenix it, 2 and Phoenix Really? Yep. Yeah. In 1944, there was a American troop train that went through a French railroad tunnel carrying $10 billion in Nazi gold, which they found. This is documented in a movie on the old Patton uh, scenario, in which this train was dynamited in the tunnel, killed 51 GIs, and of course, Patton, who was there.